And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I love this passage. It is one of the classics of all the scriptures. I think that it, someone told me the other day that it is the most popular short story that's ever been written, which would make sense since the Bible is the most popular book that's ever been published. And this is one of the most taught passages of the Bible. And so with this story, we're going to be diving in to our vision of what it means to help religious and irreligious people to become gospel people. We're currently in the middle of a, a break between um, exegetical series. We typically like to take a book of the Bible, work through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, idea by idea as we go through. So we just finished Genesis, <laughs> praise the Lord, and now we're moving on to John in a couple of weeks. We'll be starting John sometime in September. And in between here, we're going to do a short series on our vision and our values. Because our vision has stayed the same over the past several years, but our values, we have recapitulated uh, them. We've re- had a re-idea of what our values are, and we've cast those values to our members back in, in January, December, and let them know, um, hey, this is the direction we're heading. These are the guide rails for what we're doing. But we haven't really gotten to teach on them adequately. So we're going to spend this week 
talking about our vision as a church, where we're going and what we're trying to accomplish. And then the next several weeks after that, we'll be going through our values one by one and looking at passages to support those. And so I'll lay out the whole series for you uh, right now. Our vision is that we exist to help religious and irreligious people to become gospel people. This is our intended destination. This is where we wanna go and what we want to see accomplished, what's what we wanna see happen. Our values are these three things. We want to be a church that values sound doctrine, gospel culture, and multi-ethnicity. Sound doctrine, gospel culture, and multi-ethnicity. Now, what do I mean by each of those things? You'll have to come the next three weeks uh, so that I can explain them to you uh, with more time. But those are the three things that serve as guide rails. So there's a lot of different ways that you could potentially accomplish the vision of helping religious and irreligious people to become gospel people. But these are the three things that are going to serve as our guide rails to help us to know if we're going the right direction to get to that intended destination for our church. And then the way that you actually do it, uh, the vehicle that you drive in, is your strategy. And we're still, we're still formalizing that. We're still figuring it out. But I'm gonna give it a go, okay? I'm gonna try one out with you guys today. This isn't the forever written in the membership class strategy uh, for the church, but I'm gonna try one out with you. And this is what I hope to see us achieve. And it will probably be something like this. But gospel people, seek the presence of God in worship, are shaped into the image of Christ through discipleship, and are sent out by the Holy Spirit on mission. So we seek God in worship, we're shaped into the image of Christ through the discipleship, and we are sent out by the Holy Spirit on mission. And I think that that is the strategy, that's the way that we're going to see these things come about. So anyways, we're going to go back to our vision today, and our vision is to help religious and irreligious people to become gospel people. And before we start digging into what it means to be religious or irreligious, let's just talk about what it means to be a gospel person. That might be a term that people in here have never heard of. What does it mean to be a gospel person? I've heard of a person, and I've heard of the gospel, but what does it mean to use gospel as an adjective describing what a person is to be like. What is a gospel person? And very simply, a gospel person is someone who believes the gospel. But it goes much deeper than that because if you truly know the gospel, you understand that the primary identifier for a person who believes the gospel is the fact that they are a Christian. Before their political party, before their ethnic identity, before any other type of identity they might have or hold, before their own sexuality, before anything, your primary identifier is that of Christian, someone who's been beloved by God. A gospel person is someone who believes and has experienced the good news of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension on our behalf. And through faith, you are united with Jesus and welcomed into relationship with God. A gospel person has been Saved, a gospel person has been remade, born again, transformed by Jesus, however you want to say it. Now, there used to be another word that meant this, but that word has changed meanings in the past couple of years. It's now a, a naughty word, one that I'm a, a, even a little embarrassed to say in front of you, and it's the word evangelical. 
Evangelical comes from the Greek word euanglion, which means gospel. When we get that word in Greek, euanglion, whatever, Uh, I don't speak Greek. Um, We translate it good news or gospel. And so back in like the 40s or 50s, when they wanted to define a movement of people who believed the gospel and were primarily identified by who they believed Jesus to be, they called it evangelical. What a great word. Except the word has completely changed meaning now, and it no longer just means that. But it means, depending on who you ask, different things. But for most people, it means something far from it. We'll just look at these statistics to to get what I'm talking about. Um, One survey in 2020 showed these statistics. They said that 30% of evangelicals, evangelicals, gospel people, quote unquote, believe Jesus is not God. Now how do you, how do you believe the gospel when you don't believe that Jesus is God? 65% of evangelicals believe Jesus is the first created being of God. What? These are obviously people who have not read the Bible, who have not been in church in quite a while. 46% of evangelicals believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a person. They get their theology from George Lucas and not the Bible. And 23% feel that belief is a matter of opinion, not objective truth. Friends, if this is what it means to be an evangelical, I am not one. And so when someone asks If we're an evangelical church, I have to ask, what do you mean by evangelical? Because when many people use that term, what they have in mind is immediately, what's the first thing that goes up the flagpole whenever you hear evangelical? Call it like it is here, white Republican, all right? That's usually what people think of, or hypocrite. And these are the first couple of terms. Now, if you have a positive perspective of evangelical, maybe you are not from the United States. Because outside of the United States, evangelical is fine. You can use the word evangelical. If you're in England, you can say evangelical, from what I understand, and most people kind of understand what you mean, and they'll understand gospel person. But in the United States, it has come to change meaning. And it's more talking about a political movement. So we use the term gospel person here, someone who's defined by the gospel. And to better understand what it means to be a gospel person as opposed to a religious or irreligious person, we're going to study this well-known short story called The Parable of the Prodigal Son. It's called that. If you look in your Bible, if you have your Bibles open, if you look at it and you start reading this passage, It'll have the header, the parable of the prodigal son. But that header was not written in the original language. That's what we call this story. And so the the people who publish the Bibles put these headers in here to help us to read it. But the story starts, there was a man with two sons. You are very wrong if you call this the story of the prodigal son. Okay, this is a story about a man who had two sons, and that's the way that we're going to think about it. And let me tell you, as I was preparing this sermon, this is not the sermon that I wanted to preach today. 
Um, I'm going to give another little plug for the prayer meeting. I, it's something I want us to go to. And it's a, going to be a part of our church, so we just have to be committed to it in that way. But the prayer meeting, I was there two weeks ago. I have an old sermon on this topic from Acts 17. It's fantastic. Um, it's, it's on Paul in Athens. And um, I was, wait, 16 or 17, I don't remember. Um, but I felt the Lord prompting me that this is the passage that our congregation needed to hear. So the week before I went on vacation, I started studying in a mad frenzy to prepare for this. And then I actually had to look at it a little bit this week um, because I felt the Lord pushing me that this is what we needed to hear as a church while I was at that prayer meeting. So uh, before we dive into this passage, I just want to reference two books that have largely shaped my thinking. I had them in my bag. I meant to bring them up here. But the first one is The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, who has recently gone to be with the Lord. And the second one is a, less known, a lesser known one and one that's a little outside of our traditional tribe and, and the, our traditional influences outside of our stream. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's by an author named Henri Nouwen. And if you are, Henri Nouwen, if you are um, familiar with him, uh, he's a Catholic, but his, his book on the prodigal son is very moving. And I enjoyed it greatly. So my thinking has been shaped by these two. All right, let's dive in. So uh, I'm just going to retell you the story and then we'll be applying it as we go. The younger son, there was a man who had two sons, as I said earlier. And now the younger son approaches his father and he demands for his part of the inheritance early. Now, we just finished a series on Genesis, so we are all experts on, on the birth laws and inheritances and sons and all of this type of thing. He's asking for this inheritance early. What he's actually saying is a lot deeper than what we might think. This isn't just a son going to his father asking for a little bit of money. This is a son saying, I want you to be dead to me. You are now dead to me, Dad. I want my share of the inheritance now. It was, it, assuming he only had two sons, the younger son is asking for a third of the net worth of his father because the older son gets a double portion in this time. And he's essentially abandoning his family. and He's saying, you're dead to me. And this is where we get the first shock of the passage. This should come to us as a shock because as the younger son goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now, what does the father say? Okay. Now, if one of my kids comes to me and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now, I would say, inheritance? <laughs> but then after I got done laughing at them, I would say, no way, this is a bad idea. You're just gonna go and squander this somewhere. You're not old enough, you don't have the responsibility. You're not ready for this, my younger son. How did Jesus know so much about birth order 2,000 years before psychologists, you know? You're not, gonna, you're not ready for this, younger son, here. I, I'm not gonna, out of love for you, I cannot do that for you. But what does the father in this story do? He simply obliges, obliges. He simply does it. He gives it to him. That's the first shock of the passage. And that's the first thing that we should see, that this father 
is not what we expect him to be. He is not who we expect him to be. He's not going to do what we think. He's generous from the get-go. He gives his son the money. It's a clue to his character. He's certainly not a withholding father. He is a generous father. We see that here. So the younger brother proceeds to do exactly what we all expect him to do. He goes off into a foreign country, and he squanders his property in what they call reckless living. And another term for this, the way that we might think about it, is irreligion. And before long, meaning that he didn't care anymore about the rules of his household, he didn't care about the rules of his religion, he was just going to do what he wants to do to make him happy in that moment, reckless living. Before long, famine came, and he ran out of money, and he fell on hard times. Now, reckless living is fun until you fall on hard times, until you run out of wealth. And I'll tell you this right now, that Boston is a city that is full of younger sons who have gone and they are living a life of reckless living, far from the religion that they came up in. This is a place where people go to get away from the rules of their parents. We all know people like this. Maybe we have been, maybe we are these people. And this is where we get the word prodigal from. Now, that's a weird word, a prodigal word. It's come to mean, again, another word that's changed meanings. It's come to mean someone who lives waywardly. They've gone far from the way that their parents taught them to live. But that's not what the word actually means. The word prodigal actually means to spend lavishly. So that's why he is a prodigal son, because he goes off into a foreign country and he spends lavishly. He, he wastes his wealth. It's having, this is what the Webster's Dictionary or whatever one I saw on the, online, having or giving something on a lavish scale. That's the word prodigal's original meaning. And the hard times in life reveal that what our foundation is built on. And so this son has become known as the prodigal son because he has gone and lived a prodigal life having or giving something on a lavish scale. And so what did he do? Whenever he ran out of money, well, he did what many of us might do, and he went to find a job. But again, hard times have fallen on the nation that he is calling home now. There weren't very many jobs available, and so what does he find himself doing but becoming a pig farmer? Now, this is an extreme story that he's telling, and it's meant to illustrate just how desperate this younger son had become. He has truly hit rock bottom. Has anybody ever hit rock bottom out there? Uh, He has truly hit rock bottom. Because to us, pigs are gross. And for me, this is like my least preferred job that I can imagine. My wife will, will laugh at you because she sent me a picture of a pig this week knowing that I would just be glad I was not where she was. Uh, I am not into farm animals. I'm a city kid. A city kid. But to a Jewish person, as they read this, it's not just gross, as it's gross to us. But this is about as far from their religion as you can be, because pigs are unclean. They're unclean animals. If you touch a pig, a pig you have to go through a series of rituals to make yourself clean to worship the Lord again. 
This job would be unthinkable to the original hearers. He's truly hit rock bottom. And then in verse 16 it says, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. It's about as bad as it gets, my friends, that he's longing for the pig food. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he had a moment of divine reflection, a moment of self-insight coming to himself. He realizes that he's living far worse than he has to. And he concludes, this is what he says, verse 17, but when he, come, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. The younger brother here, he's realized that it's better to be with his father, but he knows that it's too late for him to return his son. Because he went to his father and he said, Dad, you're like dead to me. He has canceled the relationship of father and son. And, but now he realizes Maybe I can go and sell myself to my father and just be his servant. Maybe he'll have that much generosity for me that I can be his servant. If I can just be near to him, then he'll provide enough for me. And friends, this tells us that this son knows nothing of his father's heart. He knows nothing of his father's heart. This is where many of our Christianities end. Many people who come to Jesus, who come to Christianity, they get to this place, they hit the rock bottom, they decide to run to the Father, and they don't go that next step because what they do is they decide not to go to the Father as a son, but to go to the Father as a slave and say, I'll be good. I'm gonna do the right thing this time and maybe he'll just give me enough table scraps to make it. If I just get myself morally put together and go be near him, maybe I'll start going to church again, he'll bless me and I'll have enough to live. You never, but in this situation, you never actually get to know the, the heart of the Father. Because in this situation, if you approach God like that, you continue to think of God as harsh and judgmental as opposed to kind, full of mercy and generous. And so the son starts his way home, not expecting much. In verse 20 it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Friends, the father has been waiting. That's what this says, that the father wasn't just going about his business. The father, if he sees him from a long way off, what's the father doing? He's looking. He's looking for his son. And what does his father do when he sees his son? He doesn't just stand there indignant, ready to say, I told you so. But he hikes up his robe and starts to run, this is embarrassing for an ancient, mature man such as this. He, he, show, he bears his legs like a young boy and runs to his son. 
And what does he do when he gets to his son? But he embraces him. He kisses him. He shows his love for his son. Friends, a lot of you are afraid to go back to the father because you're afraid that he's going to say, I told you so. But he never says, I told you so. He says, welcome home. My son was lost and now he's been found. This is the language of the father. Don't believe the lies of the evil one. Father says, quick, bring the best robe, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, let's feast. The son is just hoping for something a little better than pig food, and the father reinstates him as a full son in his kingdom. Now the older son is watching all of this. And he sees it all. He sees the elaborate treatment of his younger son. And he got all up in his feelings at that moment. Uh, A lot of older children in here, uh, maybe you're the oldest and, and you resonate with this. Because he starts asking these questions. Why does my younger son, why does my younger brother get the banquet? He doesn't deserve this. Don't you remember what he said to you, dad? He said he wishes you were dead And now you're throwing him this banquet? And with whose stuff? Everything you have left, it belongs to me. You're using my share of the inheritance to bless my brother who went and squandered his. It's not fair. I'm the eldest son. Why are you giving away my stuff? But the father looks at the older brother. And he doesn't wait for the older brother to come to him. You see, the character of this father is consistent all the way through. The character of the father, he goes to the older brother. He can tell that the older brother is feeling remorse. He's feeling, not remorse, he's feeling resent is what he's feeling. He's feeling this resentment. And so the father goes to the older son as he did the younger son. And he says, look, the younger son says, look, dad, I've always been good. I've done the right thing. Why is he getting a party? Friends, the older son is right. That's what you have to see here. He's not speaking any untruths in this moment. He's saying true things. And if you were in the same situation, you would be saying the same thing as the older son here. Why? Why? This is not fair. It's easy to sympathize with the older son. But that's the exact point. And that's the point of this entire passage. That the love of the father trumps his forgiveness. That the love of the father trumps his fairness. That it's not just you get what you deserve, but it's that you get better than you deserve. The father responds to the older brother. And he says, son, you are always with me. And all I have, all that is mine is yours. But your brother was dead and is now alive. And at this moment, Jesus, the master storyteller, he ends the story. And that is not what you would expect. What do you expect to happen right here? We're missing some dialogue because this story is not over. 
How does the older son respond? We need to see this happily ever after. But Jesus doesn't give us a happily ever after story. He leaves us to ponder the heart of the father and leaves us to ponder what is happening here and what does the elder son actually say. And here's why Jesus does that. Because this story is not written to the younger son, but it's written to the older son. Who is Jesus talking to? At the very beginning of of Luke chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so then he proceeds to tell them not one parable, but three parables, because this is an important point that he's trying to make. And who's he talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders. And he wants the religious leaders to see that the love of the Father trumps his fairness. That the love of the Father is better than the justice of his Father. He's trying to show the Pharisees this, that the the religious leaders of the day, he's trying to show them this, that there's actually two ways to rebel against God. That you can rebel against God through irreligion, through going off in a wayward country and through worshiping other ways to be happy, or you can rebel against God through religion. You can rebel against God by obsessing over the rules. And the religious and the, and the irreligious brothers, neither of them truly understand the heart of the Father in this story. They're both lost. There's two ways to be lost, is what he's saying. And he's saying, Pharisees, religious leaders, you're also lost. Jesus is redefining sin here. Now, everyone everywhere has usually defined sin as breaking the rules. Sin is to break the rules. But what Jesus is saying is that sin is so much more than just breaking the rules. At the heart of sin is a desire to put yourself in the place of God as savior or judge. At the heart of sin is the desire to put yourself in the place of God. Sin is not just about breaking the rules, just as knowing God is not about keeping the rules. But sin is about putting yourself in the place of God, and knowing God is about taking yourself out of the place of God and letting him be God and trusting in him as a child. The two brothers here exemplify the two competing visions for the good life that we have. The older brother says, follow the rules, do the right thing, you'll be okay, you'll get what you deserve. The younger brother says, find your own meaning in life. You gotta discover what's good for you, discover yourself. And 10 years ago, if I had preached this sermon, I could have said these are the two competing visions of the political parties that we have in our country. That the Republicans, they say, Like the older brother, follow the societal moral law and order or I'll condemn you. While the Democrats, on the other hand, as the younger brother would say, self-expression is most important. Let you be who you want to be. But in the past few years, we've seen a lot of morally zealous Democrats and a lot of Republicans who don't care about the rules anymore. And so this has been turned upside down. I can't use my Democrat and Republican illustration anymore. And here's why these two are so similar. And here's why they've swapped. And here's why we oscillate between these two. 
That's right, you're not always religious, or you're not always, you're not a religious person or an irreligious person. You are both a religious and an irreligious person. And some of us default more to one than the other, but we each oscillate between these two. And here's why we do that. Because at the heart of religion and irreligion is the same thing, and it's worship. You see, religion is the worship of rules to get to God. It's not the worship of God, it's the worship of rules to get to God. While irreligion is the worship of anything else other than God. And Christianity is the only thing that teaches us true worship that will bring us true satisfaction, the true worship of God. Now, I've shared this quote before, uh, but it's been too good, it's been too long and it's too good to to keep from you uh, again. But David Foster Wallace, who's um, a very famous author from uh, early 2000s and 1990s, uh, back in the late 1900s, um, he, he was a famous author, and he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005. It's almost been 20 years now. Um, but, and he's an atheist. He's not a Christian whatsoever. I'm not endorsing all of his beliefs, but this is very interesting he gets to the idea of worship at the heart of everything we do. Hear, hear what he says at this Kenyon College commencement. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And... An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And hear this. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough Never feel you have enough. That's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know all this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will never, and you will need more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being find, found out, and so on. So look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're the default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware aware of what you're doing. It's so profound that he sees, even as someone who doesn't worship Jesus, that everyone worships. Because what you worship is what you value. And you slowly slip into these worships as you're influenced, as you scroll on a screen. You're slowly shaped to love and appreciate specific things. At the heart of your religion is actually worship. 
It's just the worship of secular things. And Jesus thought the religious people were actually a lot more to deal with than the, the irreligious people. That's why he spent so much of his time intentionally angering the religious people. Eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. I mean, when you get to the end of Jesus' life, who kills him? It's a religious mob. Come together thinking that they're doing the work of God. With, with religion, you feel like you're actually worshiping God. But you're not. You're, wa- you're worshiping your way to God. Which is very different than worshiping God himself. Remember, both the sons are missing the character of the father. Religion says, obey, and God will love me. But the gospel says, God loves you. Now obey. Religion says, the number one value in your life should be to do the right thing, to keep the rules. But the gospel says, the number one value in your life should be humble repentance. Recognizing, realizing that you're going to to mess up, but it's not about what you've done, only what Jesus has done. So the message of Christianity is not about religion or irreligion. It's not about conservatism or liberalism. It's in a completely different category. Christianity is about what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's about the good news that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve to die, to be resurrected on the third day and ascended into heaven where he reigns and rules still to this day. And he did all of this as a substitute for you and for me. You cannot add to what Jesus has already done. Adding to what Jesus has done is like taping a bottle rocket on a SpaceX uh, spaceship. Like, sure, you know, but it's not going to do anything. If anything, it's just going to throw it off. They call this the parable of the prodigal son. But the true prodigal in the story is the father. Remember, prodigal means having or giving something on a lavish scale. And that's exactly what the father does here. He gives on a lavish scale. For those who are irreligious today here, our God is waiting and he's watching and he's ready to run. He's waiting for you to take a step and he's going to run after you. He's ready to kill the fattened calf, my friend. He's ready to receive you back without payment, without penance, just with open arms. Don't try to clean your life up first or you'll never get done. When does the younger son go to the father? But when he's ready to eat the pig's food, not when he's like kind of gotten his life back in order. Friends, this is the most important thing about this story. What is the image of God that you have in your mind? Is he harsh, withholding, judgmental? Or is he compassionate and kind and lavish? Lavish in mercy and in grace? Does he pour it out upon us? Or is he withholding, keeping it close to himself? The Bible describes the Lord as rich in mercy and ready to lavish his mercy upon us. And that older brother in the story, 
He's the one that most of us probably resonate with the most. He's got his act together, doesn't he? He doesn't run from the Father. He's following the rules. He's a good person. But he's the one that the story's meant to show us is actually lost. He's the one that's actually lost at the end of the story. That's what Jesus is trying to do. Because what should the older brother have done? Whenever the younger brother ran away, what should he have done? Should he have just sat on his laurels and said, huh, don't have to worry about him anymore? The older brother should have gone after his younger brother. He should have found him in that wayward country, paid off his debts, and took him home. He should have left his father's home to go and seek after him. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. The better and truer older brother. He leaves his father's home in heaven. And he comes after us. And what does he do? He finds us. And he pays our debts. And he carries us back to the father. Saying, look who I found. That is the character of Jesus. That he loves in this kind of way. I want to end today by praying for two groups of people. I want to pray for those of you who have been living in a distant country. And I want to pray for those of you who have been living close to the Father, but full of resentment. Who have been worshiping the rules more than worshiping God. Because that's your distant country. And you are just as far. And today is an opportunity to take that first step toward the Father. And friends, oftentimes it only takes that first step because the Father's ready to run after you. And so as we close here today and move into communion, this is a moment for you to come to your senses. If it's the first time or the thousandth time that you're coming to your senses, I just want you to bring something to the Lord, something. What is one thing that you can bring? Remember, we all, the default modes of our heart are religion and irreligion. What is one way that you have been religious? What is one way that you have been irreligious? Maybe you define your entire life with religion or your entire life with irreligion, and we need to pray for you, and we would love to pray for you. We're going to have a couple people in the back. Alexis and Michael are both going to be back there, ready to pray for people, receive you, and to pray with you, and to help you to take that step toward God. But for each of us, even if you feel like you're doing pretty well, let's try to find a way to step toward him, to give him the worship that he deserves. Over the next song, this communion, we celebrate communion each week here, and it's an invitation for us to come back to the Father because what the Bible says is that when we get to heaven, there'll be a lavish meal, a wedding feast for us prepared. And this communion meal symbolizes just a foretaste of that meal that we will be invited to. So we're reminded of God's lavish grace and mercy through this communion meal. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf and he tore it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we eat the bread and drink of the cup, we're reminded of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. So church, would you stand as we prepare ourselves to receive this meal and um, to worship the Lord?
Father, as we come to your table, God, help us to see your true nature. Help us to take that first step of coming nearer to you and help us as a church to embody this vision that this is what we want to be doing every week, recognizing the religious and irreligious corners of our heart and turning them back to you and being reminded of what you've done on our behalf. And God, I pray for anyone here who knows they need to make that step but are nervous or feel hesitant. God, would you just move their feet, move their, their spirit and their soul to walk toward you. And God, as we prepare ourselves to receive this meal, help us to evaluate ourselves, to know if we're walking in the truth, and to come to it with thankful hearts of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.